jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Audio dramas. This is Inside Barry Reynolds, featuring legendary songwriter and guitar player Barry Reynolds. Known for his iconic work with Marianne Faithful and Grace Jones, Barry is also one of the original Compass Point All-Stars, the group of international musicians that created some of rock and roll and reggae's most groundbreaking albums and sessions at Chris Blackwell's studio in the Bahamas in the 70s and 80s. Throughout this series of in-depth interviews with New York-based DJ, musicologist, and journalist Greg Kaz, Barry reveals his fascinating story from Lancashire to London and Nassau to New York City. A great rock on tour and gentleman, Barry tells inside stories of his early years as a teenage guitar prodigy around the early Beatles scene in Hamburg, becoming a top recording and touring musician for everyone from Clapton to Black Uhuru and Joe Cocker, and his most recent collaborations with Baba Mall and New York performance artist and musician Tammy Faye Starlight. And now, part one of Inside Barry Reynolds. But let's kind of uh, start from the beginning. So, uh, Bolton, Lancashire. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of in between. Uh, it's it's on what they call the Pennines. It's closer to Manchester, but like in between Manchester and Liverpool, and it's on on the Yorkshire border. And so the accent isn't. It's not like a Liverpoolian accent, you know. Or a Mancunian accent. It's more of a Yorkshire accent. They talk like that. In fact, my father, uh, the way that he talked, he was almost biblical, because he he would talk. He would say things like, um, "Just fancy coming down pub, thee." Do you know what that means? Just fancy coming down pub, thee. Fancy going to the pub. That's right. Yeah, uh, but uh, do you know what I mean when I said biblical? You know. Dust, it's almost like just thou fancy coming down pub thee, you know. And so it was like, wow, this is you know, almost you know, yeah, old, olden times, yeah. And also, uh, un- unfortunately, I think through uh, through through the media, I think we've we've lost a lot of those those accents because of uh, television. And so uh, accents have kind of bled into other accents. And so where I was born, like four miles up the road, it was a different accent. You know, know, it always struck me, especially in England, how people can tell an accent from just like somebody a mile away. And it's interesting what you say about how the media over the years has kind of like flattened that out a bit and have people talking sort of like more like one another? Well, I think, you know, I mean, when I, uh, when I speak to my brother, you know, I, I've, I've lived in New York for like 30 years or whatever now. And um, I don't, to me, I obviously, I, 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 I don't know where my accent is, but uh, I remember at one point he was like, you, so, you sound like Kojak. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, you're losing, you're really losing your accent. You're sounding American, you know. I mean, I, I, I love New York, you know. I mean, I've, I've always loved New York. Now I'm having a few doubts. But, um, 
you know, I love I love the accents in New York, the Brooklyn accent, you know, the, uh, the Queens accent. Queen, the Queens. I'm from Queens. You know, I I, I lived in Queens for a long time. Yeah, I grew up in the Briarwood, Jamaica area, sort of. Oh like. yeah, I know, I know Jamaica. So yeah, no, no, no. Where, where's Satchmo's uh, museum? It's in Corona. Corona, that's right. Yeah, he 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 was, uh, and still is one of my one of my heroes. You know, even uh, Miles Davis, who who was who was very. Uh, he, he never gave out many compliments, let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he knew what Satchmo brought to uh, Trump. Gave him a job, basically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so while we're talking about formative influences, you know, I know my, my whole sort of music history, and I'm very up-to-date in terms of, like, how the average English musician of a certain generation, you know, you grew up in this region, this area, you heard Ooh. that Buddy Holly record or you heard that jazz record or whatever it mm. was that sort of set you on your path and you, you know, you got your hands on the 45 or whatever it was. And then you just sort of like, you know, you got your first instrument on higher purchase, they call it, you know? <laughs> and you, so how, so how does that play out in, in Barry Reynolds's case? Well, with being born in, um, in Manchester and, you know, and Manchester being a port along with Liverpool, right. we were very much influenced. We were different from the South, from London. Our influence was uh, mainly, certainly when I moved to Hamburg, but it was, it was uh, soldiers coming from America. And usually it was black soldiers coming from America bringing R&B. And and so my guitar playing wasn't like in, in in the South, you know. They were very much influenced by by the blues, like the Stones, you know, and Ch uh, Chuck Berry and all that. We were more into uh, rhythm and blues, like Sam and Dave, and uh, that, that that's where you got the Northern Soul from. Right. And right. so my my particular style of guitar playing, I wasn't I wasn't trying to copy BB King or or Freddie King, or anything. Right. I, I I was I was more into the like Stax players and uh, and uh, the rhythm. Steve Cropper. Yeah, uh, Steve Cropper. You know, uh, Steve Cropper was a big influence, actually. Actually, I I, I finished up. I, I I may be straying a little here, but I finished up uh, doing an album at Muscle Shoals with a with a friend of mine, and and what really. Uh, what really surprised me, you know, I was speaking to this guy, Barry Beckett, who was a keyboard player there. And also the, the, uh, Barry Beckett, he's on a million records. Yeah. And uh, Barry Beckett was saying, he said, yes, yeah, you know, we're in Muscle Shoals, we're right in the center of Alabama here. He said, and, uh, you know, and all the artists that we were interested in were like, you know, Aretha and uh, people like that. And a lot of people thought, you know, the early, Aretha albums, you know, like, uh, you know, Black Session guys, you know, and stuff right. like that. And there were these white Southern rednecks. They weren't rednecks. Yeah, you no, know, that's a very interesting point you bring up because the whole romantic notion of Aretha going down south to record with these rednecks who were funky was yeah. so great. And there was a period when, like, all these people, like, 
Clapton and Joe Cocker and whoever else were all going. everyone when well, the stones finish up down, going down there and everything. But uh, I remember Barry Beckett saying that uh, when uh, Aretha was 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 very uncomfortable. You know, I know uh, Jerry Wexler's son. You right. know, uh, Paul Wexler, um, and he he was saying that when uh, Aretha first hit you know when when he was like who, who the hell is this but aretha was like very nervous like surrounded by these guys like what 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 do they know about my music right and it was only at one point where she started because she was a wonderful pianist yeah yeah and uh, she started playing some gospel and they joined in and they just you know fell into it and started playing along with it and she thought the, these guys can really play and and wexler knew what was going on he had a good ear and he knew that it was definitely working but then aretha did a show at the apollo and uh, she arrives at the apollo this is a story i heard and there was like uh you know a mile of people right. waiting to go in and this this car pulls up and <laughs> all these white rednecks get out the car and it's like what the hell are they doing here? <laughs> yeah. And he'll say, they're the musicians backing Aretha. <laughs> yeah, it's like. You can imagine the awkwardness of that particular moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but I, I, I really admire, you know, uh, Muscle Shoals for like, because uh, when I went down there, as soon as I got out of Muscle Shoals, it was, when I was down there, it was a dry state. Right. And uh, as soon as I got out there and started, you know, uh, like finding out where I was and, you know, I'm going into, uh, you know, cafes for breakfast or whatever, you know, I realized I was in a different, different land because the only, the only place I knew was uh, New York, which was always a melting pot. There was never right. a cultural, uh, right. it, it, there was no cultural shock for me to come to New York. Right, you know, but, but if someone dropped me off in the middle of uh, Alabama, I'd think, "What yeah. am I, I doing here? This is that's, weird." That's, that's the case for many of us, I would say. I'm sure. So, what were some of the early specific records that really, you know, that you got your hands on and said, "All right, this is exact. This is what's lighting my fire here." I think. Uh, I, I think the early one thing that every band in the north and uh, as i say it was called uh, northern soul but one one thing that we all played was uh was green onions right and uh, reason being is because one it was simple, simple but it had this beautiful groove to it yeah. you know and uh we could all we we, we could play it you know and so uh, green onions was was a a, a big influence and uh, and Buckety and time, you know, time is tight, and yeah. uh, th th those tracks, you know, just very simple. Ding 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 ding, and it was just like that 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 groove, and somehow it touched us because the North was considered in England as like the South was considered in in America. You know, we were the poor. It's a reverse. Yeah. And, and and so it, it it really touched us. And then what happened with me was in England we used to have these holidays uh, at school, and they were like 
six-week holidays. And uh, one time I was at home and my brother also played guitar and he was like three years older than me and a, a, a much better guitarist. And uh, someone knocked on, on uh, the door and just said, listen, uh, we're looking for, uh, we believe there's a guitarist here called Jack Reynolds. You know, and I'm going, why, why, why do you want to see him? And he said, well, we're going to Hamburg and we need a guitarist. And so I said, well, I'm ready. And pretended <laughs> that I was my brother. And so the day after they said, well, just come down for a jam first, you know. And so I went down and we had a, uh, we had a jam and the band wasn't very good. And, uh, and so I got the gig. And like within a week, I'd left home. I'd run away from home because I was still at school. And I finished up in Hamburg. Yeah, um, Hamburg was a rite of passage for many, it seems, in the north. Northern <laughs> bands, yeah. yeah, northern, yeah for bands. northern bands, yeah. And uh, it, it, it was, if, if you were in a band and you played in Hamburg, like, you know, um, um, two months and you came back and the band wasn't good, you were dreadful because we would play six hours a night. Right. You know, and it was Drunken just like, sailors and prostitutes and what have you. Oh, oh, oh yeah. It, 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 it was a wild place. I'm actually thinking of writing about it. I've done some research about that time, which was like 64, you know, it was just after the Beatles. Right. You know, that I was there, but I played the same place <coughs> as the star club and the uh, top 10. And, right. um, and join different bands. And so when you're playing every night, you know, it, it, it's like you're learning your, your, your trade or, and, and if you don't get it, you're not a musician. You'll never get it. So at some point, did you move to London after that or? Well, what happened? I, I, I decided I didn't want to go home after that because of the freedom and, uh, that you, that you'd experienced. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was 15, I was naive, I didn't know anything. And the next thing, I was going out with this lady, and I didn't know was that she was a lady of ill repute, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so to put it a nice way. Uh, but I was in love with her, I was 15, you know, I, I was kind of besotted by this lady, and I remember this guy, who was in Blood and Pig, uh, Jack Lancaster. He was in this band with me. And uh, I remember him after about three weeks going, Barry, um, I want to I wanna have a word with you. He said, do you know what, do you know what er her name was Iris? Uh, he said, do you know what Iris does? And I said, I think I came out with something like, yeah, she really loves me. Or something, <laughs> whatever. And he said, she's a hooker. And I was like, a hooker he said yeah and i think i attacked him you know because it was like i thought it was an insult and then and then he said just think about it he said she picks you up every night at four o'clock after the gig you know do you think she wakes up every night at four, four o'clock just to pick you up and i started thinking about it and he started making sense and um but i was still in love with her you know it was it didn't it made no difference to me well it did at first you know but i it was like as i say, i was incredibly naive so i went from 15 to like 25 in in about a month in about a month 
Yeah, I just grew up like that. Yeah. Wow. After Hamburg, and I spent quite a bit of time in Hamburg, I went back to, to Manchester with my lady of ill repute. And uh, we got a little apartment there. And then I joined this band. Blodwin Pig. Yeah, yeah. And we moved to London. So how did, the, speaking of Blodwin Pig, how did that connection sort of happen? Well, I, I'm, you know, I hate to disappoint you, but what what happened there was uh, I'm sure it was a very brief passage. Because yeah, yeah, and also uh, the fact that I I I knew and had worked with uh, Jack Lancaster, they were they were having some problems with Mick, and uh, uh, Mick was a southerner, and he was into. You know, uh, he, he could have easily joined uh, someone like John Mayall right. or something like that. He was one of those guitarists, you know, doing, you know, copying Freddie King and whoever. Right. right. And so when when he left, I got a call from Jack and uh, he said, you want to come down and join the band? And I wasn't a blues player. My My thing, I was a rhythm player. You know, I was... You know, as you the mentioned, whole northern yeah. southern divide that rears its head once again in the sense that the difference that a lot of people don't think about between, say, the Beatles and the Stones is that again, the Beatles being from the north had more of like an early soul, early Motown. Oh yeah, Smokey Robinson and people Smokey like Robinson that was their was their guy, you know, yeah. and early rock and roll. Whereas the guys from the south, from London, were all about you know, John Lee Hooker and Fred. Absolutely. Fred and, you know, Big Bill Brunzi. Yeah. And that whole sort of like heavy blues scene. So, yeah. that's, so I can see where that might've been an issue with you. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I, uh, for me to say that I replaced Mick, you know, I did, I, I did some gigs, but I'm sure I disappointed a lot of people because I wasn't into, you know, the, doing uh, soloing for, uh, for, for, for me, and I think for most northern bands, the, the the groove was the main thing, right? You know, and it, it wasn't soloing and showing what you could do on on the guitar and and soloing for me, like uh, uh, I uh, even at that age, you know, I was thinking if I hear another guitar solo, you know, I'm going to kill someone, you know, who's <laughs> just basically copying someone else, who's copying someone else right. and stuff, and so uh, my thing was to work with the bass player and uh, the drummer and to back singers. So I lived in Brixton for, uh, for a while and, uh, you know, it was just outside of London, which was ideal for a band uh, because it was uh, mainly uh, Jamaicans living in Brixton. So we, we got this house for nothing and we could rehearse any time because we'd be coming home from gigs at four o'clock in the morning and there was always music playing. And so there were no complaints or anything. And, you know, it was just gigging around Brixton. Then I started doing little sessions here and there and, um, you know, not, not, not much, just, just trying to make a living. And then I started writing. I, I, I think there was like seven, eight, Lost, lost years, kind of thing. Um, in 1974, you put out a single mm. um, for Rack, 
which was all right yeah for mickey most's uh, for mickey most label which is called yeah. outsider's point of view oh god i haven't heard that since 60s Jamaican artists were huge Impressions fans and all those rock steady vocal groups all modeled themselves after the Impressions. Yeah. There, there's hardly an Impressions song that doesn't have a rock steady or reggae cover of it. Things like people, people get ready and yeah. stuff like that. You know, you can hear Bob Marley doing that, you know, and, yeah. and just like in, in a rock steady way. And uh, mm -hmm. he was a great influence on, 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 on Marley. And I, I heard that the Bob Marley spent, I think it was about a year or so in Delaware. Uh, yeah, Delaware. There you go. And uh, he was he was listening a lot to a uh, black radio, you know, and yeah. Curtis Mayfield and people like that. And so that was a huge influence on him. Well, the story was that it was also that even when he was in Jamaica, you know, Cox and Dodd from Studio One, yeah, periodically come to the states and just come back with just a huge pile of. 45s and give Marley the uh, job of sorting through them, listening to them and finding out what's, you know, good for people to cover or for himself to cover. What he can steal from them, which is what we do. Right. So I see that like, you know, that influence obviously spread. There is a definite Curtis Mayfield influence in that tune. So yeah. um, 74, you did Outsider's Point of View for Rack. 
a year later, there's a single on Epic called "The World Wasn't Ready." Oh, that that that, that was a nightmare. That that was uh, that was someone's idea that uh, they 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 wanted me to do something, and uh, I went in and I had no I had no control over it whatsoever. And I won't mention the guy's name, but some some guy who was uh, producing it. I remember at one point he, he came in. And it certainly didn't help my confidence. And uh, said, "Listen, can you can you put a little more soul into this? Because I'm I, I don't consider myself a vocalist." And I said, well, "I said, what do you mean?" And and he did. He finished up doing an impression of Ray Charles, believe it or not. And I finished up trying to do an impression of him doing an impression of Ray Charles. And it just, it was like, this is, this is wrong. And I, I, I didn't want to go in the studio again after that. You know, I really didn't. So, so, so that comes out and I'm pretty sure that if you could, you would like buy up every copy and burn it. Absolutely. <laughs> I really would. You know, I mean, so I, not long after that, you meet up with Marianne Faithful. Yeah. I got a call from a friend of mine who unfortunately has uh, passed away now. And uh, he was working with a band called Chicken Shack. And Chicken Shack were blues. Chicken Shack was Christine Perfect's band. That, that, that right. Stan Webb and all that. Yes. The whole, the whole yes. blues thing. Yep. And uh, he, was a, he was a pianist. And um, he called me up. He said, uh, Marion Faithful is maybe doing a tour. Are you interested? And my first reaction was, no, not really. <laughs> You know, unless unless the wedge is good, you know, unless the money's really good, I'll do it. But then I I, I got to meet Marianne, and uh, I actually went down and uh, and he said, "Well, just come down and have a play." And I got down there, and the band was a mess. You know, the, no arrangements, and no one really knew what was going on. Marianne was going through a hard time at the time with with, with drugs, but. I we, we we clicked in a in a in, in a strange way, and when when I got talking to her, I, I realized that 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 she was one at the, uh, she was incredibly bright, incredibly well read, and uh, for me that 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 means that means a lot. You know, you usually find out like the the, the writers that you read. You know, uh, a third of their their lives they they're reading, right? You know, other books. You know, they they they're filling they're filling that wellspring with words and uh, stuff. And uh, with with Marianne just talking to her, it, it kind of fascinated me. And so I said, I remember saying, you know, we should maybe try writing something. You know, and uh, Marianne was. Yes, let's do it, darling. She said, uh, but now, now we've got this band. Why, why, don't we, why don't we split the royalties up? You know, and I'm thinking, well, if she's willing to do it, I'll do it. Okay. Right. You know, completely stupid. And so um, anyway, we, did, we wrote Broken English. And, uh, and then. Classic right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it was a very simplistic, you know, uh, a, a guitar went, and then uh, we got Steve Winwood. 
so so now you're working with Marianne Faithful. Uh, she's on Island Records. She's having her issues, but so I guess that um, leading up to this point, you've been developing your songwriting. Yeah, I actually kind of started Marianne writing songs. I uh, I mean, she she'd written lyrics. She wrote the uh, lyrics for uh, Sister Morphine, and uh, she right. didn't get credited for it, you know, but. Uh, I knew that, 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 that she was a great lyricist. And so, um, you know, we started, uh, I, I just said, let's, let's, let's write. And uh, we did. And so, and so that album comes out and is a big classic, really got her career back on track and got her a whole new sort of like lease on life in terms of her career as a recording yeah. artist. And so there was that followed by Dangerous Acquaintances so yeah, yeah which was it had that second album kind of uh syndrome. yeah it kind of dropped you know it was like if you come out with something that's so big it's it's like you've got to be prepared or you know with 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 something equally as good or better and right. uh I, I don't think we were this is Delphine Blue for JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. You've been listening to part one of Inside Barry Reynolds, a series of in-depth interviews with the legendary songwriter, guitar player, and DJ musicologist and journalist Greg Kaz. For more information about Barry Reynolds and this series, check out the Audio Dramas channel on JasonCharles.net Podcast Network and listen and subscribe to the entire series wherever you get your podcasts or live and direct on JasonCharles.net. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.